In the early days, cannabis primarily tasted and smelled like it did due to the soil, climate, and genetics of the region of the world that it came from. In the United States, we primarily received flour from Mexico, but flowers from other Latin American countries certainly showed up as well. Rarely, but sometimes, we were able to delight over something especially exotic from Afghanistan or Thailand, too. Over time, though, enough bag seed found its way into the hands of cannabis lovers who also had the mind and resources to grow them locally. Breeders all over the world began to cross and hybridize these cannabis chemovars to create unique plants that had their own taste, growing patterns, colors, and medicinal value. This breeding happened both indoors and outdoors, but due to prohibition, breeding was mostly done indoors in the United States. Breeders hybridized plants to tease out the most wonderful attributes. Sweet, sour, earthy, skunky, and fuel tastes all became more pronounced once breeders got involved. Breeders also selected for mold resistance, size, overall health, and and so many other attributes that a particular grower thought might be valuable. This dedication to craft is why cannabis breeders are revered and why modern cannabis is so badass compared to the stuff we grew up on. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Mean Gene. Mean Gene is a legendary cannabis breeder from Mendocino in the Emerald Triangle region of Northern California. He is owner of cannabis genetics company Freeborn Selections, but is most known for his epic collaborations with aficionado seeds like the Black Lime Reserve strain. Today we're going to talk about Mean Gene's breeding practices, naming conventions, and that epic Black Lime strain. Hey, welcome to the show, Mean Gene. Hey. How's it going? Good, good. I'm glad that you could make some time to be here. You know, when I was getting uh, set for this show, the first thing I noticed is that, you know, I I actually thought that your primary association was with aficionado seeds because everywhere I've gone, it's always like, you know, mean gene from aficionado. But after I got uh, the opportunity to start following your Instagram feed for a while, I realized that, that, you know, the, the imprint that you are primarily responsible for is actually your own freeborn selections. So would you kind of like break it down for us? Like, like how you work between aficionado versus freeborn? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, basically, uh, you know, Leo from aficionado was, uh, somebody who actually was living right on the same road as me. And, uh, he won the Emerald cup and I, you know, I said, well, uh, these guys look like they have some good seeds. And so, you know, I messaged them, I think on Facebook to, uh, to say, Hey, you know, can I pick up some of your seeds? And I wound up meeting them and, um, you know, they, uh, those guys saw what I had and they were like, yeah, do you want to do some, some kind of a release, uh, through aficionado? Your stuff is really good. And so, you know, we started collaborating on a, on, on a little bit of stuff here and there. And we put out a uh, black lime reserve and the, in the pines and the Versailles and, I gave him the the red Hindu Kush F3 that I had. Um, I think that's about the only ones that we really put out. And, uh, and uh, that's, you know, those are the ones that people, you know, like black lime reserve was a, was a big, huge hit. I knew it was going to be good because I really like black lime myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we put that one out, that one got a lot of really good press. And then I did, I think it was, there was like 650 entries or something in the Emerald cup in um, 2000, was it 2014, I think. Uh, and I, I took second place with that. And so people really know me from, from my work with aficionado more than anything else, because those are the, those are really the only seeds that I've publicly released other than, um, me and Braveheart from Oregon. We did a, a little, uh, giveaway that was, uh, uh, Nubia, which is a CBD plant crossed with, uh, with the Harlesu from uh, Ringo at Sohum Seeds. And so really, um, Freeborn Selections, a lot of people are growing out the seeds and have grown out the seeds 
that I make for years. But if for anybody to really know me for having ever got any of my seeds um, at a club or anywhere else, those would have been aficionados. So that's really why uh, people, you know, if you ask, oh, Mean Gene, they're going to go, oh, yeah, aficionado, Black Lime Reserve, In the Pines, and those ones that I did work on. It's, you know? it's, it's a lucky thing that you chose somebody good to work with when you won, right? Because, you know, if you're going to be associated with somebody, you know, Leo and aficionado is like, you know, that's, that, that's somebody great to be associated with, even if it was, you know, just for, for a couple of runs. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, it was funny because, uh, uh, they won in 2012 and then I came in in 2013 and I took third and then 2014, I took second and then 2000, uh, 2015, I guess, uh, I took first place in the Emerald cup. And it was funny because after a while people started to say, um, you know, it's fixed. These guys win every time there, there's no way that you can just win every time. And, um, you know, it was actually one of those things where I was, I was actually, uh, it was actually a great feeling to have people say, Oh, the contest is fixed. You win too much. You know? <laughs> so uh, about, it was about mm, seven or eight episodes ago. We had, um, uh, your neighbor, Alan Atkinson on the show. And, you know, he was telling us that you live on the same mountain and, and he said, he says, yeah, man, he's like, you know, you know, I can throw a rock and like, you know, uh, you know, hit all of these cannabis cup winners that live all around me. Um, you know, it's, it's like, there's some kind of magic on that mountain. You know, what do you look for when you're looking for a location for breeding? Well, you know, there's a really interesting thing that happens and, you know, there's the whole people have finally started to kind of open their eyes lately to the whole question of terroir and, uh, and, um, you know, basically location and some people will say, oh, it doesn't matter because if you're growing in potting soil, then that doesn't even, it doesn't even, location doesn't even play. But what's interesting about this part of California is that if you go all the way over to the, to the extreme coastal zone, your flowers will basically produce mostly leaf and they'll produce a lot of resin and they'll produce a lot of terpenes, but they'll have very little density and they'll, they'll be very lightweight and your plants will grow really slow and it's not good for production, but the, for smokeability stuff is really nice. So then when you come a couple miles back and then you start to get into areas like Comchi, Branscombe, um, a little bit further inland than that would be maybe like Leggett, uh, uh, you know, the west side of Garberville and Redway and areas like that. Um, even a little further west and closer to the coast would be like Honeydew. There's all these little these little areas and every area has something different. And, and from looking at it over the years and being in different places, I've been able to find a correlation where you look at what is when, when you get farther away from the coastal influence, what happens is your flowers, they have smaller features. Um, every part of the flower is smaller. Uh, the stems are thinner. The leaves are smaller. Every, everything is basically smaller. Even the, the trichomes even become shorter and more uh, closely clustered. And so there's an interesting thing that happens where when you go to the coast, it gets larfy. When you go inland, it gets so hard that when you go to break it up, to like say roll a joint it actually breaks down in almost a uh undesirable way where the the flowers themselves are so dense that when it breaks up it almost turns into powder and if you go over to the coast then it breaks up into these big chunks where every every piece is this big big piece you know and so i'm right at a place where I get the benefit of the coastal influence that causes it to grow really um, big, well-defined features, and I get the really big, tall, thick trichomes, um, but I still have the advantage of being far enough inland that my flowers still are dense and they look nice. Um, to people who are into that look of something that's actually got a nice dense round look to it. Yeah. That so, bag appeal. Yeah. And so it's really interesting because people will say, okay, well, um, 
you know, it's just either it's a coincidence or it's a fix. You know, either it has nothing to do with anything scientific because it just is random. And there happens to be a lot of people in this area who have award-winning uh, cannabis or they say oh well they just give it to somebody who they know from that area but what people don't understand in a lot of cases is that the way that people like Tim from the Emerald Cup or the judges from the Emerald Cup I met those guys because I you know I mean I knew Tim from years and years back but we weren't in the same circle we didn't hang out together he 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 might have known who I was a little bit um but the reality was that those people got to know me because they went, wow, you had some really good, really good weed. And that's how I, I started to know those people. It wasn't the other way around. And that, that's how it happens when you run an event like that and then you meet people who have really outstanding stuff. You're going to go, oh, well, you're the one with the – they obviously have an interest in really good weed. They're having a contest, right? Right. So that's how it happens that there winds up being in this little area – um, in my opinion, uh, people here have really been holding a lot of the best genetics for a long time. This particular town in this county is a place where a lot of really, really good stuff has, has come out of. And, um, and so you have the genetic advantage. You have the advantage of a lot of people who have experience. And then what I was saying about the climate is you have this one little area where you get the best of both worlds, where you have the coastal influence, but not enough to to take away um, from the quality as far as, um, you know, like, okay, well, it's got the look and it's got the smell. And, you know, if you go ahead and you go over uh, one mountain over to the east, you'll have a lot heavier flowers and you'll get a lot bigger yields. But when you go to break it down to roll up a joint, when they go to smoke it in a cup, it doesn't break down the way that like nice indoor will break down. It's almost like it's compressed because it grows so dense. It's ridiculous. And so, um, you know, for me, if I'm looking for the ideal climate, I really like places like, um, you know, just to the east of Santa Cruz, um, Santa Rosa, uh, the east side of Garberville, the east side of Redway, right here where it's in Mendocino um, along these ridges here. There's these certain areas that really will produce um, produce the type of flower that makes it the most smokable. And that wouldn't matter, say, for something like concentrates. But for the actual in a flower contest, there's a certain texture that just breaks up and it rolls up better. And, and so certain strains... Um, if you have a less uh, a strain that has less dense floral clusters and you grow that to the east of me, then it'll get dense enough to where, okay, well, maybe someone's sour diesel might be coming from the east and that might do better than something that I have here um, because when I grow it here, it's not really dense enough to get the to win the points on the look in the contest, you know? Yeah. So there's there's different things, and there's certain strains that do better in certain climates, just like with grapes. If you grow one type of grape, you're going to want one type of of um, you want a certain temperature on the nights, and if the year's not as good, then it's not as good of a it's not as good of a year for a certain a certain type of wine, you know? And um, certain areas and and then of course you know then the soil goes into play but most people use potting soil and that's the big that's the big point everybody has well it doesn't matter where you do it if you're using potting soil and i'm like no climate's big if you run an indoor room and you keep it slightly more humid then you're gonna have flowers that are gonna be not so ridiculously dense and if you run it a very very arid environment you're gonna have stuff like if you grow purple urkel you look at it and you can't even tell where the features are it's just this thing you're like I can't tell where anything is at all. It looks like somebody put it to smashed it all to get grounded up and smashed it back together because every little feature has grown to be so petite, you know? Yeah. So, um, so let, let's know, take that's that a, one. That's a big thing. Yeah. Let's take that one more step further. Right. So, so you're talking about breeding the, the superior flower for, for a cup and for, you know, you and your friends to toke. So how does that play into the breeding? Right. Because, you know, uh, uh, you're choosing, um, 
you know, your, your key males and females in this, you know, kind of Olympic training <laughs> environment that you're growing these flowers in. And, and, but then, you know, you're, you're passing on this gear to people who are going to be growing it all over the country and indoor. And so, you know, uh, do you, what do you, what do you consider when you're growing it on your property, which is pretty much a perfect place to grow, um, when you're considering the gear that you're going to pass around to others so that so that maybe it doesn't need to have such a perfect environment? Uh, well, that, that, that's, an, that's another interesting thing, too, is that as much as it's a great environment for something that will do well in a contest um, – it's also an area where things have to be really, really hardy and they have to be really weather resistant. And, um, you know, like if a strain is, is prone to powdery mildew, it's going to show in this area because we do start to get the fog at the end of September, um, the, where other places won't have it. And, and, uh, we do get, you know, this is, this is like considered like a temperate rainforest here, especially when there used to be more redwoods, uh, in the area, this area, you know, this year, I think, uh, I mean, I, it, this is just a rough estimate, but I, I think we got maybe a hundred or 110 inches of rain, um, here this year. And that started in, uh, the end of September last year. So anything that does well here, it's going to have a pretty good shot at doing well for people in most climates. Like if I have something and it really does great for me here, somebody in Oregon or Washington, where the weather's even worse, um, there, it's still going to do better than a lot of stuff they might get because, um, because of how the weather is, as opposed to if, say, I was an outdoor guy and I was in, I was in Southern California or I was in Nevada or, um, you know, if you were at a, a low, uh, you know, it just, it's, it's, um, we're at a fairly high elevation here. We're fairly coastal. And so everything, as I go through, I really try to look at, okay, well, how would this do for somebody in a more extreme climate? And I, tr I try to really go for things that are hardy in all ways. And that's one of the things that's made me wind up with strains that are so high in terpenes because terpenes are oily and strains that produce a lot of oil tend to do a little bit better in, say, the rain or the fog because they're it's almost like a it's like water off a duck's back you know mm -hmm. the rain falls on them and it just it just comes off you know so um so yeah it's interesting because it's such a great climate for the finished product and yet it is kind of a challenging climate as a farmer you it's know. kind of like a survival of the fittest, right? It's like, well, if, if it does well on your property, it's going to be thriving and the, the terps are high because it's got a really strong immune system. And, and so then it's attractive, attractive to our human nose too. So you're, you, you know, be, the combination of, of the difficulty and also the, you know, your terroir means that, that the, 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 the strains that you're breeding are probably going to be pretty good, you know, pretty bulletproof just about anywhere unless you you know change temperature humidity in a big way yeah it's it's really neat it's almost kind of like a like a, a magical thing you know to look at it and go okay well there's all these things that have come together to make um you know to to, to lead, lead things down the path that they've gone down because um you know it's everything's been underground for a long time so people don't necessarily know uh, like Mendocino County, it's my people at this point, maybe people still are, you know, saying, Oh, Amsterdam or, uh, you know, these different places where people know about a lot of weed or even like, uh, Humboldt. Humboldt has been known for a long time and, um, Mendocino and Humboldt, Trinity, Sonoma, uh, Monterey County, um, there's really been a lot of really great strains that have come out over the years again and again. There's just all this stuff. And I feel like um, part of it comes from the people who live here, of course, have more experience and do more stuff. But uh, I think also the climate of this area, um, like I said, you know, if you have this stuff, if your weed is greasy, it does better in the weather. And the fact that we have a little bit 
of a more extreme climate, I think that, you know, that in all of these areas that might be, that might be pushing that a little bit, you know? Yeah, right on. That makes sense. Hey, let's go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Mean Gene, Master Cannabis Breeder at Freeborn Selections. We'll be right back. As cannabis normalization sweeps the country, knowledge of how to grow cannabis naturally and without synthetic inputs has become more and more available. In fact, probiotic growers are experiencing large yields and exceptional terpene profiles without using chemicals banned in their state. Move away from the risks inherent to chemical nutrients and instead invest in your soil. Use your soil again and again, reducing costs and improving the vitality of your soil with each cycle. Keep It Simple Organics has been a leader in aerated compost teas for years and now provide premium soils and nutrients to the cannabis industry. They offer a full line of all-natural inputs for building your soil, feeding microbe communities, and brewing nutrient and compost teas. They can even help you test your soil to spot deficiencies that may be holding you back. Check out their website at kisorganics.com. Enter the word Shango into the format checkout to receive 10% off your first order. Stop pouring bottled nutrients on your soil only to throw it out each cycle. Start building living soil that will serve you for years to come. Visit KISorganics.com and grow healthy, thriving cannabis. We humans are attracted to plants because they offer us relief and are a whole lot of fun. Sometimes, though, the best parts are buried inside the plant, and we need to use specialty extraction technology. When it comes to cannabis, it is extraordinarily important to extract its precious oils without changing them in the process. We want to preserve the properties of the cannabinoids, terpenes, and other constituents that all work together. Since 1994, Eden Labs has been developing extraction technology and processes to do just that. Eden Labs was founded by a cannabis-loving engineer during the early days of medical marijuana in California, and the expanded Eden team has been designing and building industry-leading solutions for cannabis extraction ever since. Eden Labs' flagship product is the newly improved high-flow CO2 extractor. As other extraction companies enter the market, it is the high-flow from Eden Labs that everyone chases and tries to compare themselves with. Not only that, but the improved automation software allows data to be collected, stored, and studied. Eden Labs can outfit your whole lab. Eden's Cold Finger Ethanol Extractor creates astonishing whole plant extracts working alone or in tandem with an initial stream distilling step to isolate monoterpenes before extracting the rest of the botanical constituents. Eden offers you many options, including vacuum distillation, column distilling, stirred reactor units, and accelerated solvent recovery. When you partner with Eden Labs, your lab team is enrolled into the Eden Labs training program to boost their understanding of Eden's best practices to ensure that your outputs are exactly what you require for your application, whether it be dab oil, oil for pen cartridges, or edibles. When you work with Eden, you're not just buying the tech, you're buying dedicated customer support to help you attain your business goals, too. You can hear Eden's CEO, A.C. Braddock, talk about the company's values during Shaping Fire episode 19 that was all about CO2 extraction. So many of the new companies in the market just smell opportunity, slap an extractor together, and hire a marketing company. Eden Labs has been listening to feedback from extractors and consumers for about 25 years now. They care about both you and your consumer. Partner with Eden Labs to extract astonishing cannabis oils and terpenes that you will be proud of. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Eden to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is Mean Gene, Master Cannabis Breeder at Freeborn Selections. So Gene, before the break, we were talking about the importance of weather and terroir there on your uh, very specific mountain where you grow. And, you know, a lot of people take your seeds and they bring them indoors. So, you know, it begs the question, you know, do you have a part of your breeding process that, that comes indoors? I mean, do you do any sifting indoors or are you doing all your sifting outdoors? Well, I mean, you know, in certain cases, it's it's nice to um, do certain work with clones that have been proven again and again indoors to be really stable. 
because then that way you know that you're at least getting part of your gene pool is coming from um, something that's tried and true indoors. Um, I do a little bit of breeding um, indoors or in a like an indoor outdoor kind of environment, meaning that it's like a you know like a green a winter greenhouse with supplemental lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, which I honestly think is better for stress testing for indoors than an actual indoor scene because it's a lot harder to keep the um, environment really dialed in. Yeah, because it really swings. Exactly. And you get, you know, you will get those lower temperatures and you will get some of the higher temperatures. And, you know, it's a little bit harder to keep it like, you know, if I if I was running an indoor, it's really easy to go, okay, I'm 76 degrees all the time, night and day. That's all it is. And, um, and that's cool. Um, for me, because, um, indoor where I live has kind of gone, it's kind of gone out years and years ago. There's people who do it, but as soon as people were able to grow out in the open in the sun, um, and the prices started coming down for people, what started to happen is it became a lot more, efficient for people to start running light depths and running greenhouses and running outdoor. And so um, what I do basically is I try to breed stuff outdoor because in my experience, if it does, if it, if it does good indoor, it's going to do great outdoor. So like I said, if I'm starting with some of those, some of those uh, genetics, you know, different, you know, OGs or master Kush, Hindu Kush, um, different things that, that they, you know, they do perform well indoor. And then I incorporate those into stuff that I have coming from outdoor. But a lot of the genetics that I had that were coming from outdoor were Afghani based. And so when you take them and you put them indoor, they do great. You know, the stuff that I, the, the stuff that has more of a problem going indoor is ironically the stuff that's coming from indoor, like the chem dog, the sour diesel, um, some of the OG, uh, Girl Scout cookies, cherry pie. Um, those are the things that, you know, even when you bring them into an outdoor breeding program, you go through them and you go, oh, some of these here, they you stress them a little bit and they, they go intersex on you. So, um, you know, what I do is I, is I mainly breed outdoor because if it looks really good outdoor – and it smokes really good outdoor when somebody takes it indoor if they do it the right way indoor has potential to have a little bit more of uh what like what i always call like the perfume on it like if you grow outdoor og it's very earthy and robust and it's nice it has a great smell but good indoor og has this little added little spectrum of terpenes that seem to show up that are detectable it looks a little prettier it's a little shinier it's a little um the resin tends to look a little bit more light colored and so i try to find the stuff that when i when i breed it outdoor it 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 looks almost like it's indoor you know and i won't say like oh this will pass for indoor but it's in that ballpark you know so um, then what I do is I'll have people go ahead and grow them out indoor. And as far as I've seen so far, um, a population that you can grow really stressed outdoor or in a greenhouse and it stays stable and doesn't show any signs of intersex. When you take that and a good grower grows it indoor, it's going to do just as good um, as far as sexual stability indoor as it does outdoor. Everything that I have that is problematic indoor, it's problematic outdoor if it's stressed, you know, if it's overwatered, if it's too hot in a greenhouse or whatever it is. So um, for me, for breeding, I do pretty well being able to do it all outside and then do a lot of testing inside. You know. Yeah, right on. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that I enjoy doing is over the winter, I'll uh, I'll play with some some new seeds and strains that I've I've never you know used before, and you know see what they do indoors. But in the at the end of the day, for my own head, I really like the terpene profiles that come from full on sunshine. You know, I mean my LEDs are great, and and you're right. There are all sorts of really nice attributes 
of growing indoors. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, training an Olympian, right? You're tra training for a very specific thing and I can control everything and I end up getting this good product. But, um, but I also like that little bit of a, you know, that, that, that wild outdoor taste with, from the broader spectrum of the sunshine. So, you know, whatever, whatever I find over the winter that I love the best, I'll take it outside and see it express itself that way. And, you know, I think that's just a, a fun thing of being able to go indoor and outdoor that you can see both expressions. Yeah, I think so too. And I, and I know what you mean about the outdoor. I mean, like personally for me, um, I only know a few people. I know a lot of growers and there's only a few people whose indoor is something that I would want to smoke above um, outdoor. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of people say, okay, indoor is always better. And for me, I'm like, uh, if I'm going to see a hundred samples of indoor and a hundred samples of outdoor, I'm probably going to like, five of the outdoor and two of the indoor, you know, yeah. because, um, outdoor, everything just kind of thrives and it works and indoor, um, a lot of times stuff is just really washed out and you can tell that there's too much heat and it just doesn't look, it doesn't look like it's healthy. And that, that happens a lot, you know? And then I notice outdoor, although indoor the resin might be more visible a lot of times the outdoor it's actually more of these thick almost like sheets of resin where the trichomes are almost sticking together in like globs and um i you know for me like if i if i smoke indoor i'm gonna be i'm gonna be high for you know maybe an hour and if i smoke um if i smoke outdoor uh, and it, of course, it's genetics, or it's hugely dependent on genetics. You know, some stuff, no matter what, it's going to get you high for like four hours if it's got some crazy haze or something. But um, I really like the high from the outdoor. Uh, to me, it really just hits me and it stays, and I can really feel it. And it's not just like this little rush of stuff, you know? So. Yeah. And I also find that, you know, uh, you know, I, I still consider myself a, a novice grower and g g growing outdoors is just so much more forgiving. Uh, you can make simple mistakes indoor and end up with big problems, but, but outdoor, you know, you've got, you've got, you know, pest predators naturally outdoors. You've got the sunshine to help you with some of the molds. So long as I don't have, you know, extensive fog, I'm, I, you know, I, I know I'm going to be in pretty good shape outdoors, whereas indoor, something can go bad fast. Yeah. It seems like outdoor, the environment is forgiving enough that as long as you, as long as you handle it and dry it correctly, you know, as long as it's properly dried and handled, you're going to have something that's really nice. But when you're indoor, it's almost like the whole process of flowering is like a curing process. If your room, you know, out, outside your stuff can be budding and it gets up to 90 degrees and you're fine. But if you're growing indoor and your room is hitting 90 degrees all the time, it's like when your weed is finally done, it's just going to be um, – uh, you know, it's just, so tired. I don't know. It's, it's just, tired. Yeah, yeah, it's just, there's nothing substantial anymore about the, about the resins profile, you know? It's like when, when I stay in the sun too long, you know, <laughs> like, oh man, I need to go take a cold shower somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, every breeder has got those specific cannabis plant attributes that turn them on the most. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a regional thing and it's also a breeder thing. What do you look for when choosing plants that excite you that you want to work with, uh, further? Well, you know, for me, it's like, um, experience leads me a lot. Like I can look at a plant and go, Ooh, that's one of those plants that gets the big buds all the way inside of the plant or, Ooh, that's one of those plants that doesn't need a lot of support or that's one of the ones that's shaped that certain way where I know it's just going to get tons and tons of buds all over it. Or, um, you know, the main thing for me as far as like what, what defines, um, the quality of a strain is really what do you wind up with in your bag when it's all said and done. So for me, what I want is the ones that have that crazy, I'm really, you know, I mean, for a lot of people, it's all about, well, is it, is it stony? What's it do to you? What are the effects? And I can appreciate that. And I, I respect that. Um, 
mindset a lot. But like, honestly, for us growing up here, like when we were smoking a lot, um, we would smoke so much that it wasn't a matter of, okay, well, we only have this four grams of weed. How high is it going to get us? Mm -hmm. So we really got into flavors and smells a lot. And I really like the I really like the flower um, just for aesthetics aside from actually consuming it or doing anything with it. I like to sit and I like to hold it. I like to smell it. I mean, the same way people like like cut flowers, like if you like um, – you know, whatever, tuberose or gardenias or, you know, whatever kind of flowers um, that are nice just because you can sit and smell them. I think of, I think a weed like that. So I want to, I want usually to have it be something where when I have it, I really enjoy how it looks and then I really enjoy how it smells. And I like the ones that are really special in that if you smelled them and you didn't know it was weed, you might not know that that was a weed smell, you know? Yeah. Uh, so th that, that's a, that, that leads me a lot, but then it comes down to on top of, okay, what is it in the bag? It's also, what is it in the garden? So is it fun to grow or is it a nightmare to grow? You know? And so anything, that's where I say, that's why I say experience has led me. It's like, I look at a plant and I go, Oh, this one's going to be a pain in the butt, you know, or, Ooh, this one's going to be a dream and I'm going to be happy just to go work with these plants every day. So if I have something and I say, Oh, I like this one, you can bet that the plant is going to be fun to grow. It's going to be fun to look at. Um, it's probably going to be fun to harvest and, um, it's also going to be fun to have it dried in your bag. You know? Yeah, yeah, right on. Your your Black Lime Reserve was a you know a home run by anybody's standards, and um, I'm I'm grateful to have uh, been able to sample it a few times. And, you know, it's like it's got that bright lime and coconut and fruit over over like a bed of like soothing earth and moss. You know, it's it, yeah. it, it plays both ends of the spectrum, and, yeah. and and it's not like you know like when you when when somebody says, "Can you taste the fruit?" Can you? And you're like, "Oh." maybe I can. Whereas the lime, it's like, boom, you know, it's like, it's like a, you know, a, a green popsicle out of the, out of the fridge that, that, or that out of the freezer, that, that point, you know, what, what did, what went into that? You know, cause since it's probably the strain that, you know, I would say nationally, you're probably most associated with, um, you just, just gives us a little bit of background of the black lime. Okay, so the deal with that was that that release was a clone that I keep that I call Lime Number One, and what it is is a uh, is a uh, um, it's a uh, a PK, the OG type, um, because there's a couple different kinds of PK, but the one I used was an OG type, and I um, I crossed it with what I called Black Lime, and what Black Lime was was I I. Um, I had these plant, I had these seeds, and I got them. I think ninety six or ninety seven. I got the, I got the two different kinds of seeds, and one of them I was working with my buddy, and he actually got one side of it, which was um, an old strain that was a lot of a lot of chemical smells, really deep, really heavy, a lot of skunkiness, really toxically stony to the point where, like. If somebody's drinking alcohol, like smoking that is a no-no, like four beers and two hits of that, and you're probably going to be laying in the bushes throwing up, you know? It was really, really strong. And we called it Pog for purple, orange, and green. Um, I didn't come up with it. My buddy did. And it was it was old genetics that were, that were, that came, um, from my family in the eighties and got recycled through a couple people and then came back to us. And, um, you know, it was kind of like just the regular stuff to me. And I didn't really, you know, I didn't really hold it at a high value cause none of it was pure anymore. It had become this old oil can strain, um, crossed with, uh, which was a, which was a Oaxacan Afghani crossed with the Northern lights. That was a clone we gave them for years and and this guy did this breeding and then me and my buddy worked for him he got some seeds so there's that side of it which is this really deep heavy nasty gross thing but it was it was amazing but it was just crazy you know and um 
and then I had I, I worked for for another friend of mine, and uh, I I was um, silk screening uh, people's trim back then to make them hash, you know, and I was pressing the hash and, um, people were like, Whoa, this is like old school hash from back in the day, you know? And this is like, I started doing this in like 94, 95, this guy from, uh, Lebanon showed us how to do it, how to press it, you know? And we were like, Oh, that's really neat. You can press it. Cause of course, if you have really good hash, you can press anything, but he showed us how to press anything basically that could be pressed to make dark, sticky, nice hash, um, using heat and everything. And so I was doing that. And so I went through the guy's stuff and as I'm going through, I go, Hey, there's some seeds in these. Are these good? You know? And he goes, yeah, I'll give you some other seeds though. But if you want them, you know, I mean, you can try them. He goes, but they're nothing I did on purpose. So who knows what they really are? They're just seeds. And it's like shade, a rounding you know? error for him. Yeah. So, uh, so I take the I take the one I take the one and I take the other and now the pog I know is good so I grow it out. The other one, um, which at the time I didn't know what it was, I just knew it was like Afghani, and uh, and later on I found out there was Northern Lights in it. And then even more recently, only like last year, I was talking to the guy. He goes, I was talking to a friend who had been talking to the guy I got it from, and he goes. Hey, did you know he had used the 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 old Burmese in there from so and so? And I go, no, he, I never. He never told me that. And he goes, yeah, I was. He goes, we went further down the rabbit hole, you know. We we got down the wormhole or something like that. And he goes, then all of a sudden, you know, this this more info pops out, and he's got the Burmese in there, the old Branscombe Burmese. And I was like, oh, okay, and. So that made a little bit of sense too for there to be something else in it because it was so exotic, this other thing. It was always like grapefruit or cranberry or lime or something just always really nice, you know? And so um, so uh, of course, the ones I knew were pretty good because the pog my buddy had bred a couple times and he said, oh, these are all really good now. And so I did a seed patch uh, garden, and what I did was I went, okay, well, here's the, here's the one that I know is great. I'm going to keep the males from these, and here's the one that came out of that shake. I'm going to go ahead and get rid of those males because I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what's going to come out of this stuff because the guy who gave it to me, he said he didn't know, you know? Yeah. So he only grew one thing, but he just wasn't – he was like, yeah, probably not my keeper plants. Those are probably the more wimpy ones because it's the perfect yeah, you, you got to focus somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I get those and I grow them. And out of the ones that were the citrusy ones, I got a couple really nice, big, beautiful plants that were just what I would have wanted. But – Interestingly enough, the worst plant in the whole thing that was one of those ones that if you looked at all the plants and you go, okay, well, there's a dozen of them. Let's get rid of the weakest one. Uh, That was the one that wound up smelling like it smelled like Thai lime, you know? Um, And so... You're like, you're like, buck up camper. You got some work to do. You need to bounce back. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was basically like, okay, well, and, and typically in breeding, the way I do things is this. If I get boys that are really, really, really weak, or there's something that I really don't like about them, um, I'll go ahead and kill males. But and this is for open pollinations, of course. I do selective line breeding, too, where you only use one male. Yeah. But in this case, it was just we were just trying to make a whole bunch of seed with this stuff and just kind of see what we get. So I wound up kill, I wound, I wound up killing all the males from the citrusy stuff. And from the fuely stuff, I wound up keeping maybe three or four males. I don't remember. There was a bunch of them there, and I killed most of them. And so uh, – so when I have females, even if the females look bad, I keep them just in case they have something really cool because it's not going to water down the gene pool because it's easy to keep the seeds from a female separate. But when you have a lot of males together, you can't keep them separate. Their pollen's all going to mix, right? Right. So whereas I cull a lot of the male population, I don't cull out much of the females unless there's something really bad about them. Like maybe if they get like a stem rot or something that I just... I just don't want to have nothing to do with even growing it one time. But if I'm willing to grow the plant one time and it's a female, it's going to stay. And so 
it was just this wimpy little plant. Its buds, when they were finished, were only about as big around as my thumb. None of them were long. And it had these tiny little leaves and these thin little stems. And it gets all the way. I think it was a it was a Burmese throwback, judging by what was in everything. And it gets all the way to the end, and it gets this incredible smell. To this day, it's still my favorite smell. And it does it comes out of the lime, but there's not a ton of them in there because the lime was the cross of this weird plant that was there, and it was already kind of a sport. And then I had crossed it with something that was in a totally different world of flavor. So. Um, anyway, uh, what ended up happening was I labeled it, I labeled all the plants. So I had like tall purple, um, tall purple cranberry, um, tall green fat Northern lights, you know? And then this one plant, it smelled like lime and it turned black in the fall. So on the package of seeds, which was a bag of seeds that, you know, geez, it was a lot, you know, it was a lot of seeds I made. It was a whole, imagine, you know, it's a whole garden full of six foot plants and they're all fully seeded, you know? Yeah, that's a lot. And so that's a release right there. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of seeds. And so, um, so that, that's what it wound up getting labeled as, as the black, so that I would know which plant it was. Oh, this was the plant that smelled like lime and it was, and it turned black. So that's where the name black lime came from. It wasn't like, Ooh, what's gonna, what what's are hip? people going to really <laughs> think is cool or whatever. It's like, no, it's just, it's just off of my label, which is how most of my names come about. I just, I write them down for reference for myself and then people ask what it is and that's the only name for it. And then the name sticks, you know? Yeah. So that was really where that came from. And then I wound up taking a male out of that population when I planted some of them because the females came out really good. And I didn't really expect them to be that crazy, but they were. They were amazing. They were like the best stuff I've ever seen. And then it started. there started to be the OG craze. And so I went, well, let me take some of my different males and throw them on OGs and see if I get anything to come out OG, which I didn't because all my stuff was so dominant over the OG. So I wound up with this basically with a plant that had that did really good, but it it uh, it wasn't OG. It still had all of the all of the uh, terpene profile from from the middle ground of the uh, of the black lime. So it has this really heavy chemical funk earth moss thing, like you said, and then it has all this really beautiful floral limey. Uh, citrus zest um, stuff going on, you know, and that's 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 why it wound up being such a um, such an odd thing because I really I took two things that were really different, you know what I mean? It was like peanut butter and bacon, or you know, it was a it was a weird thing to put together. So right on, cool. Well, thank you for sharing that story, and that makes a lot of sense too because the the flower that I have, you know, it's it's this kind of you know blackish, bluish, almost iridescent, and it's nice to hear the background. Uh, behind it. Hey, we're going to go ahead and take our second short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Mean Jean, Master Cannabis Breeder at Freeborn Selections. If you grow cannabis with sunshine, you can often feel limited by the seasonal cycle. You want to grow sustainably and save money, so you use as little electricity as possible. But if you haven't studied or implemented light deprivation techniques into your greenhouse, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. By incorporating light deprivation solutions into your greenhouse, you can often add two or three additional growing cycles to your year. When you pencil out the financial benefit of those additional cycles, you'll realize why commercial-scale light deprivation technology is remaking the cannabis industry. What used to be done by pulling tarps over hoop houses has been scaled up over the last few years in such a way that it's become mechanized, easy, and affordable to even small-scale commercial cannabis operations. Forever Flowering Greenhouses is the industry leader in light deprivation, greenhouse design and operation for the commercial cannabis industry. Their team of greenhouse experts have been in the fields of Northern California for decades, and they're now building greenhouses for commercial cannabis companies across the country. If you are new to light dep and growing in greenhouses, I encourage you to go back to Shaping Fire episode 13 with guest Eric Branstad of Forever Flowering. I talk with Eric about the importance of intelligent greenhouse management, as well as the huge financial benefit of incorporating light depth techniques. There are so many aspects of utilizing a greenhouse that can go wrong. From temperature and airflow to light depth and workflow, Forever Flowering will help you produce crop after crop of well-cared-for flowers. 
They can help you retrofit your existing greenhouse with light depth and other modern systems at a level that fits your budget. If you're just starting out, Forever Flowering can help you plan and build your new greenhouse so that you get started on the right foot. The cannabis business has enough risks without trying to go it alone with your greenhouse. Contact Forever Flowering Greenhouses to partner with folks who have an indisputable reputation as knowledgeable and easy to work with. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash FFG to find out more. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True Terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose True Terpenes for a top-shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I'm your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is Mean Gene, master cannabis breeder at Freeborn Selections. So Gene, you know, um, I know that you've done some runs with Aficionado and the Aficionado stuff is all, you know, ultra premium elite and also in limited edition. And, you know, that is an interesting aspect of it because it makes the seeds themselves more valuable, but it also keeps it out of the hands of a lot of people. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the limited nature of seeds. Like, like, do you, do you, are you attracted to the idea of a, of a limited run? So it's a little more rare or was that mostly just because that's the, the aficionado, uh, like premium model to, to release? Uh, you know, that's actually a concept. It's kind of a double-edged sword with, with doing stuff limited, but it's a concept that I was supportive of because, um, I've noticed over the years that if things are a little bit harder to get, um, people tend to value, value them more highly and take them more seriously, which from a preservation point of view, um, because that's really, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned with things staying around because I've seen so much stuff just be gone and you never see it again. So, um, to me, I feel like if somebody gets a pack of seeds and they know that there was only ever a couple hundred of these packs released, or there was only 50 of them released, once they get it, they're more likely to breed it and keep those seeds around. And people are more likely to say, oh, I really wanted to get that. Whereas if everybody's already seen it at everybody else's house, they're more likely to go, yeah, I could get that anytime. I'll grow that later, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly when I see people at your uh, at the aficionado booth at Emerald Cup, I mean, people are treating these things like they are, you know, gifts from the gods. Because I mean, not only are they paying, you know, serious money for them, but you know, really, if you know, that's all you're gonna get. And so, you know, it, it you're you're popping each one with intention, and you're taking care of it, and you just, you know, I know when I have got rare seeds, I I I just shower them with more love and care than I do if somebody gives me, oh, here, this is my latest run. Here's 50 seeds of it, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, I use the analogy of dogs, you know, because I see a lot of, I, I see a lot of things, um, a lot of parallels because, you know, breeding, breeding dogs, breeding seeds, um, like, you know, I, I have a, 
I always, I always say, hey, you know, like, and it's the same with seeds, with dogs. I say, hey, go adopt a dog. Go get a dog at a shelter. They're all good. It's the same as seeds. It's like, hey, go buy that $18 pack of seeds. Go try, yeah, plant those seeds that you found in the bud. Go plant those seeds that can't even, you know what I mean? Like, just try them all. And, and there's going to be, there's going to be some stuff. But I know for a fact that if, um, if somebody goes and they and they go get a dog out of a cardboard box in front of a store, you know, they're going to be less likely to focus on that dog as much as if somebody says, hey, here's a $12,000 puppy. Yeah. Somebody who buys a $12,000 puppy, you think they're going to miss their shots and let them get parvo or <laughs> they're not going to cut their toenails or they're not going to check their dog's ears and teeth. And you know what I mean? Like I, I have, you know, I have dogs. I have one dog. That's an expensive, you know, highly bred, like show dog type pit bull. And I have a mutt that's a St. Bernard and blue pit bull mix. And I treat them the same. But I also treat crappy bag seeds that I find out of a bud that I think is a good bud. To me, finding that bag seed, that's just like somebody saying, hey, here is a pack of seeds. These are really expensive. They didn't make very many, you know? So... For me, I have like that understanding that it could be anywhere, but I know that there's a lot of people who don't think that way. So I do understand the the value of telling somebody, look, these are very rare. There's not a lot. So that's like when the Black Lime Reserve was the first thing um, that I put out publicly with Aficionado. I was like, well, you know, I had a lot of them. I could have put out a couple thousand packs, but I knew that if I put out 300 packs that people would take them more seriously and they would be more likely to clone ones. And when they get a keeper, they'd be more likely to make more seeds and they'd be more likely to make crosses with the seeds. Cause I like it when people do that stuff with my seeds, I don't want to just put out a cross and have people go, Oh yeah, that's cool. What's the next one? You know, it's like the, like you said, people, people act like they're gifts from the gods and like, you know, depending on whether people believe in gods or a god or just the universal force or the spirit or whatever people believe we're we're getting our getting our life from, you know, those seeds are a gift from that force. You know, like that, that that's a major thing that like every type of every type of life form that there is is special, but these ones that help us as much as cannabis, I mean, you know, there's nothing that's really as helpful potentially to us as as cannabis can be. I mean, you, you got something here that can potentially, if you find the right plant, it could cure any disease. It might just be a matter of finding, oh, okay, well, look, this one produces this chemical. And, you know, once you get it down to everybody only going, oh, yeah, we just all grow OG or, oh, we just only grow sour. Or, we just only grow cookies. That's fine. But it gets to a point where you go, well, but what about all of this? You know, these plants, they don't all grow by themselves. We've, we've adopted them into our cultures and then we keep them. And then that means that if all of a sudden we lose them, it's like we've adopted them and then we've abandoned them, you know? So we become responsible for the gene pool because we've done these things to it and we've created all this really crazy diversity. And then after a while, then we go, oh, no, no, no. And it just all gets it, it, it all gets left by the wayside. And so, you know, there's 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 like a, there's an aspect of things being sought after and. So at this point now, when I feel like, okay, people understand that if I have a breed and I say that it's really valuable and it's really special and it's worth growing, people now, more so than when I first released stuff, people will believe me. So I feel like now I can put out a lot of seeds and I can put out a lot of different strains and people will understand um, where I'm coming from in breeding that that these things are special. So I don't necessarily have to say, okay, well, this is so special like this. And so, so special because of that, I can just say, look, this is really good. This is worth having. Please, if you buy them, make more, give them to your friends, take clones, keep it around. Cause it's part of, uh, of what's going on, you know? So that's why I say it's like a double-edged sword where you go, okay, well, it's good to have it be limited, but at the same time, 
you're going to miss some of these people who are out there who are preservationists who are hoping that they could get a pack and those guys didn't get a pack and some guys who just grew them out real quick and sold the weed without ever even smelling it because they heard it was a hot item those guys got some of the packs too so i want to be able to put them out so that both those i want to be the guys who want to get the seeds and they just want to hey i just want to grow a bunch of weed and i'm going to make money and i'm going to look cool and this and that great get these cool strains but i want them to be able to also reach as many of the preservationists as 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 they can so that people get their hands on them and in you know 50 years or 100 years or a thousand years from now there's somebody who's got these things and they go hey, I don't know where these came from, but they're really cool and uh, they're valuable. Let's keep making more. And, you know, that that's like a service to the to the plant because the plant is, um, you know, they're like for me personally, there's nothing in life that's ever done as much for me as as a cannabis plant has, you know? Yeah, well, amen to that. And, you know, you're, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you like the idea that people are, you know, making crosses with your gear in order to, per, you know, preserve it in their region. The, um, the seed pack that I know that came up, uh, here near, near me, um, you know, my, my buddy planned the four crosses well in advance. So we had it all lined up. And, uh, you know, and so we got to try, you know, the, the original black lime as you intended, but then also, you know, four crosses and, you know, the black lime is still in there. You can still taste it, but you know, you could also get the variations. And, um, so, so there's a lot of joy in that. And, and so, you know, let's, let's, um, let's wrap up with this. You know, there's a lot of folks who are listening today who aspire to be an elite breeder like you are. And, and a lot of folks, um, you know, they're getting their start by, you know, just, they've got, you know, two strains that they like, and then they cross them and they've got F1s and they share them with their friends and they feel good about that. And so they, you know, they, they pick up a breeding book and they get a little more serious, but, but, you know, you've, you've done, you've done it all now at this point. So what advice do you have for folks willing to put in the work who want to follow on this path behind you? Um, what advice would you give them that can kind of help them along their way? Um, my biggest advice would be, you know, like, uh, do, you know, go with what really, uh, what you really, really like. Um, a lot of people, you know, as like a commercial breeder, uh, I was talking to somebody and they were saying, Oh, I just, you know, I just take, I just take males and put them on these clones and like, kind of, you know, like, Oh yeah, like that's nothing. And I was like, well, you know, if you're going to make stuff for Pete, for other people, I, what I, what I said, I think as uh, if you want to please the crowd, you got, you got to play the hits. Right. Yeah. So th- that's a cool thing to do. But if you're, even if you are doing that, you really want to go with what you really like. So the things that really um, that you really vibe with, like, all right, this is something that I really like. Like, you know, I have a buddy who he's like, I've seen all the weed, I've seen all the Kush, I've seen everything. He goes, I like Granddaddy Perp or Urkel. Those are still the thing that I like. I like perps. I'm not into this Kush. I'm not into this Diesel. He's just like perp, perp, perp. I'm like, if if you're the guy who likes the perp, then that's your thing. If that's your very favorite thing, then be the guy who makes the perp crosses, who makes the the strains that are based on perp and that have those things that you really like and then really, really tune into that. Really tune into what you're vibing with because those good feelings that you're getting about something, those are what are really telling you that that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's how our intuition works and that's how that's how our our brain and our, our, you know, everything is really is our, our whole energy is really wired to that. Like, okay, if you want to breed, breed the thing that you really like. Now you might, if you want to do it like commercially, you might have to think about, okay, well, what, are, where, where is the place that there's the overlap between these two, these two groups of traits here. Okay. Everybody else wants it to be stony. They want to get good concentrate production. They want a plant that's easy to grow. They want a plant that's high yielding. They want disease resistance. Okay. 
now so you know everybody wants those things so then now with the things that you really love which might be like in my case i love stuff that's floral i love stuff that's spicy i love stuff that's earthy i love the smells that to me are like classy like to me like loud is cool but it doesn't have to be loud for me it needs to be special so that's like my little thing that i got going so it's got to be whatever you are really really into you got to tune into that and make that be what you, what you're working towards you know because that's the only way you can really do something well is to go is to be able to really be turned on by it like all right this is the thing that i like so this is what i know about you know like if you're going to be if if you like heavy metal don't play jazz you know what i mean if you like uh if you like tacos don't make pizza you know <laughs> do whatever it is that thing that you really really like tune into that and do that to the max and then that's when you're going to wind up having these things that are that are really cool you know yeah totally following your passion and you'll you'll uh you'll never be bored in the in the cannabis field that's for sure so gene yeah. thank you so much for uh spending some time with us i know your time is valuable especially this time of year when you're especially busy uh but uh thank you for being here and sharing what you got yeah thank you for having me on dude and um you know, I'm glad to be able to get a little bit. Hopefully, you know, somebody can get a little tidbit of info here or there, a little bit of inspiration or direction or whatever, and um, you know, make some make some um, some good seeds or just you know find some good seeds and grow some good weed or you know whatever whatever people are doing with it. I think that there's some amazing insights in your story and a lot of inspiration too. So I'm sure people are going to dig it. You can find out more about Mean Gene and Freeborn Selections by following his Instagram at Mean Gene from Mendocino. Um, I also highly recommend that you check out the interview that uh, Kevin Jodry from Wonderland Nursery did with Mean Gene as part of the Wonderland Nursery Seed Series. Uh, Shaping Fire was actually a sponsor of that down in Humboldt a couple months ago. You can check that out on the wonderlandnursery.com site. Um, of course, you can find out more about Aficionado Seeds at aficionado.com. And uh, you can buy Aficionado and Freeborn Selections when they're available at seedsherenow.com. Or, you know, come on uh, down to the Emerald Cup in December and buy it direct at their booth. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los. Mm-hmm.